Matthew 13, verses 24 through 58. Next week, by the way, chapter 14, we are at the halfway point of the book of Matthew. Halfway. Isn't that cool? It's already been over a year, uh, but we're, we're getting there halfway. So exciting. Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 58 today. I've called the message Corruption and Treasure. And what we're doing is we're just going through a section of the Gospel of Matthew in which Jesus is teaching, and he's teaching with an, maybe an unusual method. He's teaching with parables. And we talked about that last time, how uh, there was a noted market, you know, marked difference in how Jesus is speaking, so much so that his disciples said, why do you teach them in parables? And we talked about why he did last time, and we'll refresh your memory a little bit as we go today. So Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. First of all, in verses 24 through 43, as you see on our outline, we see parables about corruption in the kingdom. The next point, number two, we'll see some parables about God's love for the world. Number three, parables about the end of the age. And number four, uh, Jesus is rejected in his hometown. It's a transition at verse 53 uh, into another part of the book into another geographical part of the book also. And so that's the last point there. And Lord willing, we'll get there. Verse 24, now we're going to look at the parable of the wheat and tares. Another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, the enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather them up, the tares, uh, once you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First go gather the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn." Father, as we turn to you again, the Lord, the God of the Word, we ask that you would make the book live to us, that you would speak to us through these parables today. Our hearts are open. We want our hearts to be that good soil, Lord, that produce fruit. And so we need your teaching, and we ask you in Jesus' name to bless us. Amen. Amen. Another parable he set forth to them right there in verse 24. Same setting, uh, sitting in the boat uh, just off the shore of the Cove of the Sower, they call it. It's a natural sort of amphitheater, uh, great acoustics. We got the picture of it still here, as you see. This is likely what archaeologists think, scholars think Jesus would have been sitting out here a little bit, and he would have been speaking and his voice bouncing off the water, going up to the people sitting around here, hundreds, maybe even thousands of people listening to Jesus. 
Parables are, as you remember, uh, they're a very simple way to understand parables. They're everyday earthly stories with heavenly meanings. Earthly stories, heavenly meanings. Very easy to understand. It's kind of like a metaphor. The spiritually sensitive would understand and they would want to go deeper. But those in opposition to Jesus, the spiritually dull, the spiritually dead, to them it would just seem like, you know, neat stories or maybe perhaps frustrating stories. Verse 25 says, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. So what you have here is uh, someone that comes into this farmer's field and he sows tares or weeds, as some translations of the Bible say, into a wheat field uh, that this farmer has planted good seed. Now, the purpose that this enemy came and did it is to destroy the wheat harvest. Now, there's a problem that this parable addresses. In fact, most of the parables address a problem. And as you're reading through them, you should ask yourself, what questions would this be answering? And this parable addresses this sort of question here. Since Christ is at work in the world, sowing the seeds of the kingdom through his people, you remember that last time? What will the devil do during this age? What will the devil be doing while Christ's servants are out sowing the seed, the word of God? So, the enemy comes in this situation, he sows all these tares, all these weeds into this field, and the farmer chooses to let the weeds grow along with the wheat until the harvest time comes when he will then deal with it. The tares, it's an interesting, um, you know, tares, wheat, um, I can't pronounce the Greek word, but it's really cool. It's like zimmerimmerim or something like that. It's got a whole bunch of Z's and stuff in it. It's cool. Look it up in your uh, concordance, you know, if you have one. Now, this is known as the bearded darnel. That's the name of the plant, the bearded darnel. I don't know why it's called bearded, but that's what they call it. Its seeds are poisonous. It's virtually indistinguishable from wheat until it is fully mature. When you see it, you'd think that's wheat. The darnel also hosts a kind of fungus, which is poisonous to humans and it could contaminate the good wheat and utterly ruin the farmer's crop. Also, its roots totally grow and enmesh with the roots of the wheat. Sowing tares in someone's field was punishable under Roman law because enemies would do this in these times. If you had an enemy, he'd come just destroy your crops and you were in a bad way if you didn't have your crops that year. And so this was actually punishable, and it was a serious crime in Roman law. So the servants come to the farmer. They say, hey, should we go out and just pull up the, the tares? And he says, no, just wait until harvest. Kind of an interesting statement. Uprooting this corrupting influence in the field would hurt the good plants. So the farmer will separate them at harvest time. He'll burn up the weeds and gather the wheat into the barns. So here's the main idea of this. The wheat represents the people of God. Someone comes and puts a corrupting influence into the kingdom. Now, it's sort of hard to detect because the weeds look like the wheat, but it will be sorted out at judgment. So since Christ is at you know, he's in the work, uh, in the world, um, and he's sowing seeds through his people. 
This is what the devil is going to be doing during the meantime. This is part of what the devil is going to be doing. This is encouraging to the disciples in a sense because they're following Jesus. They say, we want to do your work. We want to go out and, and uh, sow seeds. You know, we want to plant the word of God. And so Jesus is preparing them. He prepared them last time. He said, look, there's four types of soil out there and only one of them is going to produce any fruit. Now that should be encouraging to you as a servant to God. You're sharing the word with people. You wonder, how come so many people don't respond to it? Well, Jesus said himself, you know, in the last illustration, it's going to be one in four soils. You know, I, that's not a hard fraction, you know, like, oh, there's four of you in here, one of you is going to, you know. But the idea is, is not many respond, you know, so you need to be encouraged and stop, don't give up. Keep going. And you have to understand that the enemy, there's going to be these people that look like Christians, and they're going to be discouraging because they're going to look like Christians, but they're going to have a corrupting influence on the body of Christ. And God says, don't kick them out of the church. God says, just, you know, maybe you have to kick them out of the church. They do certain things, you know, touch a kid or something, you know, whatever, you know, stuff like that. Hurt somebody, abuse people. You got a womanizer guy in the church. He's always hitting on the girls, something like that. You got to go, buddy, you know. But for the most part, it's interesting. God's, you know, God says it's not the church's business to deal with this, that there is going to be a time that's going to, God's going to deal with it himself. Now, here's the thing is, um, Jesus is actually going to explain this parable in detail, so we're not going to talk anymore about it. We'll just actually get, let him do it. So now you must admit at this point that it would be hard to understand what Jesus is getting at, right? If you were just standing around there, I mean, these, these are, you know, kind of cryptic. Um, so we're going to let the explanation come to him. Uh, he'll, he'll bring it to us later. Now, verses 31 through 32, another parable uh, he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, there are two main uh, interpretations of this parable is that the scholars um, put forth. If you read a bunch of different scholars, you'll see that there are two interpretations. I'll tell you right off the bat that I am not in the majority in my interpretation and the one that I believe. I don't go with what the majority believes on this. I'll explain both of them to you. I'll explain to you why, in my opinion, um, the, the one that I believe is the correct one. Um, but I just want to tell you that straight up. And rather than be dogmatic and say, here's what it is, I'll just expose you guys to both sides of the argument and, and you can think about it. And you can ask Jesus when you get to heaven, you know, and we get to look forward to that. Um, but I think, I think I understand the right one. I don't know. I, you just have to decide for yourself, you know. First of all, the imagery, mustard seed, it's very tiny. Um, Jesus says it's the tiniest of the seeds, and this is an aside, but Jesus has caught a lot of flack for this because botanists and people that know their seeds say, wait a minute, this isn't the tiniest seed on the planet. And they say, oh, the Bible's, the Bible's corrupt, yeah. Well, no. Uh, Jesus is using a Hebrew idiom, you know? It's just a figure of speech, you know, saying the mustard seed's a tiny seed. And the, the point is, is that it's tiny. That's the point of it. Uh, some scholars go even further and say, hey, when you crush a mustard seed, it actually breaks into like a powder substance, but actually each grain of that powder substance is actually a seed. And so those are the tiniest seeds. And I, the point really is, I don't think we need to do that stuff. We just, as we study the parables, we need to understand the main meaning of them and not everything represents something. There's just something that Jesus is trying to say, right? And it's small. That's the whole point. Now, the birds... Typically in scripture, especially in Jesus' parable of the sower, represent what? Who knows? Satan, right? The evil one. Exactly. Demons, evil, right? You guys remember the parable of the sower last week? Seed bounced off the hard soil. What happened? 
Birds ate it, right? And, and Jesus said the birds are the evil one that snatches the word of God out of the hearts of people that hear it and don't understand, right? You're sitting here saying, wow, I didn't understand last week. Well, maybe in the meantime, Satan snatched the word out of your heart. Could be. Now, the birds typically represent evil in Scripture. Now, so here's the commonality between the two different camps of interpretation. The commonality is all the scholars agree that what we're talking about here is something small that grows into something large, right? The mustard seed, it's this tiny seed, and then in the parable it says that it grows into this tree, right? Now, that's the thing uh, that everybody has in common. Also, everybody has in common that they think the mustard seed represents the church, the small beginnings of the church, right? And the church did start out as small beginnings, right? Eleven disciples. I mean, there were 12, but he wasn't really a disciple and so on. Now, so there are two interpretations of this parable, and uh, one's positive and one's negative. First of all, the positive. The mustard seed is the beginning of the church. It will grow into this huge plant. The small beginnings of the church will grow into a large movement, and many people will come into it and find a home in it. The birds will nest in its branches. That's the positive interpretation. Essentially, that the church is going to grow and grow and grow, and people are going to come and find shelter in it. They're going to nest in its branches. Now, the negative. The mustard seed is the small beginning of the church, but the growth of the mustard plant is an abnormal growth. Now, Typically, a mustard plant in this area where Jesus is at grows to 12 to 18 inches. That's a typical mustard. It's like a bush more than it is a tree. In this parable, it says it's a tree. So this is an abnormal growth. It grows into this huge tree that birds can, you know, nest in. So the idea is, is that the church grows abnormally, not in size, but in influence. Now, this happened... Not long after the church was born, if you know your church history, you know that in, even in the third century, the church grew into abnormal influence in politics, culture, society. Uh, do some church history research and you'll, you'll find that to be true, that the church had an abnormal influence into areas, you know, Constantine, just do your homework and you'll figure that out. Military influence. The Pope was declared to be the vicar of Christ, and he was in control of politics and religion and all this other different stuff. So the birds nesting in the abnormal growth are the agents of the evil one. Which a cursory study of church history says shows that there's been some evil people calling themselves Christians and killing and slaughtering people and every other thing else uh, in the name of Christ. So the point is that church gets this abnormal power and influence attracting evil men which lodge themselves in it for corrupt reasons. Now, here are the reasons I believe that's the correct interpretation of that. Like I said, I'm not in the majority with it. Here are the reasons I believe it. First of all, the context is dealing with corrupting influence. We just got out of a parable with corrupting influence. Second of all, birds are evil in the parable of the sower, which Jesus just taught. There's a, uh, it's, it's called expositional constancy, okay? It's a big term to say, like, when there's parables in the Bible, when there's types, when there's pictures, typically, if there's constancy between them, they mean the same things, right? It's, so it's just a Bible nerd term for if the birds were evil in that parable, maybe the birds, probably the birds are evil in this parable. Next one, again, mustard plants are typically small. Uh, next one, birds typically don't nest in mustard bushes, uh, next one, 
church history proves it. I'm giving you seven reasons why I believe that this is the correct. Uh, number six, it makes sense that Jesus is encouraging his disciples, right? He's saying, watch out, the church is going to grow. There's going to be some abnormal growth. There's going to be this corrupting influence. He's encouraging them, uh, take the seed out, but understand this is going to happen. Uh, and here's a bonus one, chapter, number seven. The book of Revelation seems to indicate that the church in end times is a huge, massive church, right? Right? No. The, no. All of you that said yes are wrong. The church in the book of Revelation says that in end times, that although your strength is small, right? The warnings to the churches, the true church is the small church in end times. I, gosh, I hope you know that. <laughs> Read the book of of Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, okay? And see which ones are large, you know, or are even large. The true church is small in end times. So those are the reasons I believe that that's what this parable is about. It's about a a corrupting influence. Um, So the next one, verse 33, and this is the same same story. I'm not going to go through all the same points again, but I'll, I'll, I'll make it plain. Another parable he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Now, if you know what leaven is, it's a piece of yeast or you know, dough from, a, from bread. And what you would do is you would take this yeast and you're going to make new bread. And you've got dough and it hasn't risen yet. It's just that, you know, you've felt dough. Um, it's like a Play-Doh kind of in a way, you know. And so what you do to make the bread rise is you take the leaven, you take the yeast from the last piece of bread and you put it into this. And in, what it does is it literally corrupts the dough. It putrefies it. It literally rots it. And that causes bread to rise, Right. I read an illustration of a guy that lived in a house for 73 years, and when his family came from Kansas to Michigan or wherever he was, they brought the leaven, and they were still eating the same bread 73 years later from that leaven. He also brought the fire from the the stove when his parents came there, and they still had the same fire going. That's a pretty neat story. That's how leaven works. Now, okay, positive interpretation The influence of the church, it starts with this tiny thing and it just keeps growing and it keeps growing and keeps growing until it affects everything, right? Now, that's the positive interpretation. Small beginnings, the church eventually influences, eventually permeates the whole world, okay? Negative interpretation. The leaven is actually a corrupting influence that spreads through the whole church, right? Now, Here's the reasons I believe the negative. You should be able to already kind of know where I'm going with this. In Scripture, leaven is always used as a type of sin or corruption. Always. This would be the, if this was a positive thing, this would be the first place ever that leaven was used positively. Go home for your homework and do a study of the word leaven or unleavened bread. Okay, go back to Exodus chapter 12, find out what it's all about. Read every usage of, that Jesus has in the New Testament, and you will see that it's always got a corrupting influence. Read what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. There's, there's immorality going on in the Christian church, and Paul says that you need to kick that person out of the church because immorality is going on. And what does he say? He uses a metaphor. He says, you need to get the leaven out of the church, right? And he's talking about this guy that's sleeping with his stepmom, and he says, you've got to get out of the church. He's in leadership. The church is applauding it. We're so forward. We're, we're, we support all lifestyles. And, and so Paul says, no, no, you've got to get that out of the church. You've got to cast the leaven out because you're a new lump, right? 
You guys remember that part? So that's why I believe, that's the first reason I believe that this is talking about something negative. It's talking about the influence of corruption in the church that will spread and spread and permeate. And the book of Thessalonians warns that there's going to be an end times apostasy. And it just fits. Again, the book of Revelation, church will be small. It'll be filled with corruption. Read all the warnings to the churches. They're all filled with corruption, you know, except for a couple. Um, again, church history. Here's something else. Three measures of meal that this lady's making, abnormal amount. That's enough to feed 100 people. So again, it kind of has this abnormal growth, abnormal amount sort of thing to it. Here's another thing. All through scriptures, we are warned to keep ourselves unstained from the world. We're, we're, we're warned in 1 John, children, what's the last verse of 1 John? My little children, keep yourself from idols, Right? Book of James, pure and undefiled religion is this, to visit widows and orphans and to keep yourself unstained from the world, right? So that supports that there's this corrupting influence that we're to keep ourselves unstained from, right? So that's why I believe that what's being talked about in these last two parables is something negative. And again, I'm not in the mainstream with this, um, but uh, you, can, you can do your research and, and see what you believe. So I believe we had three parables in a row dealing with the corrupting influence of the devil during the church age, okay? False believers that look like genuine believers growing up in the midst of, uh, you know, bringing corruption. You may want to wait to do your study later because you'll miss the rest of this sermon. <laughs> this is what Jill does every time. She hears one thing and then, you know. Agents of evil lodging themselves in the branches of the church. That's the second one. Uh, and the influence of sin that will permeate the body of Christ more and more as time progresses. So I think you have three parables there of dealing with a corrupting influence. Now, moving on, another parable, or another, uh, an explanation of why Jesus speaks in parables. Verse 34 says this, All things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. I don't want you to think that the only things that came out of Jesus' mouth ever from this point were parables. Like, wouldn't that be weird? You know, it's like, what do you want for dinner, Jesus? Uh, Peter's mom's going to fix something up. Well, I'll tell you, you know, and he comes out with a parable, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want you to think he always spoke in parables, right? But he spoke in a lot of parables, and he did this to the multitudes because we talked about it last time. It's a, it's a sort of a, of a pronouncement of judgment in a way. It is. It's kind of saying, you're spiritually dead. You want to reject Jesus? Okay, you're not interested in this, you know? You're, you're spiritually alive. You're concerned about Christ. You know that this stuff is worthy of you listening and paying attention and trying to understand it? Oh, well. This is for you then. See, this is kind of separating people, people who don't care, people who do care. He says, verse 35, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet. You remember one of Matthew's, well, Matthew's purpose for writing is connecting Jesus to the Old Testament, showing how he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And that, I just want you to notice that, that every time Matthew says something like that, that this might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, he's showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy, 
right? So you prophecy nerds, you, sh- you love it when you see it says something like this, you know, that it might be fulfilled that was spoken by the prophet. You know, those are, those are underlined in your Bible, you know, because this is biblical prophecy, you know. Biblical prophecy has the not yet and it has the already fulfilled and um, this is an already one. Jesus came and he spoke in parables. Now, he quotes here, um, Matthew quotes, he's connecting Jesus to Psalm, 82, 80, Psalm 78 verse 2. Sorry, where Asaph, the psalmist, is talking about how he opened his mouth in a parable. And what he was doing was he was telling the people of Israel, he was telling them things about God in parables, um, drawing them to know the mysteries, the the secrets of God, the the things of God. And, And Asaph was doing that in his day, and Jesus is doing that in his day. And it says here that he was uttering things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Well, when you see the word mystery in the Bible, or you see the word secrets, they're not like things that cannot be known, right? A biblical mystery or a biblical secret is something that can only be known by God revealing it. And it can only be known when God chooses to reveal it. Now, for instance, you, ref- you read the book of Ephesians, it's chapter 2 or chapter 3, chapter 3, chapter 2. Paul talks about how the church was a mystery that was just being revealed that had been a mystery from the foundation of the earth, the church, that Jews and Gentiles would come together. That's a mystery. So what Jesus is, what, what Matthew is saying here is Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy because like Asaph opened his mouth in parables, Jesus is better than Asaph. He's the better prophet and he's opening his mouth in parables, revealing the church, revealing the truth of the kingdom, how salvation works. Moving on, he's going to explain the parable of the tares right here. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him. Pause there. See, the multitudes heard the parable, didn't get it, and likely Jesus' disciples didn't really understand it all that much either, you know? But he sends the multitude away, and he takes the disciples that are interested, and he explains it to them. I want you to understand that even if you don't understand everything about Christianity— Sometimes you come and listen to these sermons and you go, I don't know. I get some of what he's saying, some other stuff I don't. That's okay, because if you've got the heart that wants to understand more, Jesus is going to take you into the house and explain to you also, right? And so don't get the idea that when he spoke these parables, every single person that was like a real Christian understood everything he was saying, right? Because they're asking, they're saying, what, is it, what does this mean, you know? And Jesus has no problem coming to you, if your heart is genuine, you want to know something, he has no problem ministering to you. That's really encouraging. Every time I ask Jesus to, for wisdom, for, for something to reveal something to me, he does. Maybe not right that second. Maybe it comes through a whole season of testing, <laughs> you know, or pain, or maybe revealing my sin until I really start asking for forgiveness and crying out. Then, you know, I, I don't know what it is, but he's always faithful to bring more to those who seek him, right? You want to grow? You can grow. Now, he answers, uh, well, they said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. No, you guys should already get it. You've been following me. No, not Jesus. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. 
Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay. This answers the question, this parable here. God, why don't you deal with evil in the world? Seems like there are so many wicked, evil people in this world doing wicked, terrible, evil things. God, why don't you just wipe them all out? Remember what he said. You just, this isn't time for this. But what he gets at in there that I just want to point out, I mean, we could talk about this more in depth, but we're going to try to keep moving here. That term, the end of the age, is talking about judgment. There's a judgment coming after the end of the church age. See, we're in a time of grace right now. We're in this time where God is offering graciously his offer of salvation, right? This is the time of grace. You can come to Jesus if you will acknowledge your sin, if you will say, God, I've broken your law, and you will put your trust in Jesus Christ. There's grace for you during this time. But that is going to run out. There is a time where judgment comes and there's no longer the opportunity to, to receive Christ, right? Now, that could happen at any moment as, as far as, you know, the time could be up, you know, if you believe in the rapture of the church, right? It's, it could be up right now. So the time of God's grace period has, has an end time on it that he knows, right? And then those that are outside of Christ, those that have rejected him, the sons of the devil, as this parable puts it. By the way, I want you to know that if you're rejecting Jesus Christ today, you're a son or the daughter of the, of the devil. The Bible does, makes no mistake about that. I want you to clearly know that if you're not serving the kingdom of light, you're serving the kingdom of darkness. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. You're either in one camp or the other. And that's the truth and God wants you to know that today. He wants to, you to be aware of this today because he wants to give you grace. He wants to show you his love. He wants you to come into the kingdom of light, be delivered from darkness. Because look at what he says here, and this is terrifying. He says that uh, at the end of the age, at the judgment, the angels are going to come and they're going to gather up the tares and they're going to burn them. And he gives an apt description, a crazy description of hell um, in Verse 42, he says, I'll cast them into the furnace of fire where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. There is a consequence for not allowing Jesus to help you, right? If you go to the doctor and your arm is like cut off and it's hanging by one tendon, ah, it's dangling, all your nerves are exposed, blood shooting out everywhere. You feel the wind blowing on it. It hurts so bad. Oh my gosh, you know, oh, this is crazy. It's one tendon. Blah. And you go to the doctor in that state and you say, no, I refuse the help. Don't want anything to do with it. Hey, then you're going to continue on into that, right? And that's what God's telling you. There's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's going to be like a fiery furnace. There's a hell coming for you if you refuse the doctor's help, right? He's telling you, you have a problem that he wants to fix. And he's warned you. He's warned you over and over. If you're rejecting Christ today, you've been warned over and over, okay? And you'll be responsible for rejecting him, right? So, he gives, Jesus gives a description of hell there. By the way, Jesus talks about hell quite a bit. So people that want to kind of erase that from the Bible because they want to be PC and they want to draw crowds and they, want, they don't want to clear the church out, well, you're going to have to answer for that. 
Now, parables about God's love for the world, here they come. We're moving into point two of our outline. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. There were no formal banks as we know them in this time. So what you would do is you'd bury your treasure out in the field, right? My dog still does that, by the way. Field is the world, according to verse 38. A couple of interpretations of this one in the scholarly world, in the Bible scholar world. A couple of different interpretations of this one. Uh, one is a human standpoint. The other one is from a divine standpoint. Let me give you the human standpoint first. Of course, I agree with one of them more than the other. I'll tell you why. First of all, the kingdom of heaven. Here's the human standpoint. The kingdom of heaven in the parable is... Uh, the kingdom is the treasure, salvation, knowing Christ. That's the treasure. It's buried in the field. And the joy is the feeling that comes from discovering the kingdom. And what you do when you discover the kingdom of God's salvation is you sell everything. You make this great sacrifice to obtain it. That's the human standpoint, okay? Problems with that. It implies a works-based salvation, that I need to do some great sacrifice. I need to go get rid. I'll tell you what, I'm a Christian because I did this huge thing. I got rid of everything to be a Christian. Well, it implies a great sacrifice on my part. Now, hold that thought. Here's the divine standpoint. Obviously, this is the one I agree with. I'm trying not to like put a color on one of them or the other. I'm just trying to present them, you know. I'm getting better at it. I want to be a good, faithful representative of Scripture. You know, I don't want, my opinions aren't really what matters here at all. I'm just trying to help you understand, uh, help myself understand. Divine standpoint, the field is the world, same. But the man in this one, should we, just, should we just read it again? Verse 44, let's get refreshed. And the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid and for the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Okay, so the field's the world, but in this one, the man is Jesus. And he comes into this world because for God so loved the world. And he finds a treasure in the world that is so valuable to him that he goes and pays it all to have it. He buys the whole world not because he can't just make more worlds. He spoke this one to existence. He can do it again. He could make all the worlds he wanted. But there's something in this world that he wants that's so important to him that he was willing to pay everything for it. You know what that is? You. You. Here's the reasons I believe this interpretation. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Well, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says um, that you're saved by grace through faith. It's not your own doing. It's not a great work of sacrifice. It is the work of God. It's the grace of God, not dependent on the works of man. Uh, you and I don't have anything to buy anything with when it comes to spiritual terms. You know what I mean? Our works are as if they are filthy rags before the Lord. He just, there's nothing. What, what could I give to him? <sighs> I 
how marvelous, how glorious, how wonderful that my Savior would die for me, that he would come and purchase this whole earth for me, for you. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, right? Now, again, verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one of a great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Think of this. Got a, you know of a jewelry store? You got one in your mind? You picture it. Jewelry store owner goes out, he's looking around, she's looking around at uh, different places to buy more jewels to put in the store. Finds one that is so magnificent, just says, you know what? I'm going to sell everything in my store. Every, take all the inventory, take every single thing. I just want this one pearl. That's all I want. Two interpretations that go around in the body of Christ here. One's the human standpoint. You're the merchant. The pearl is salvation. When you find it, you sacrifice all because you're going to do this great work. You know, you're going to do this great thing to, to obtain it, right? Divine interpretation. Jesus is the merchant. He's the jewelry store owner. You are the pearl of great price. He sold it all, all of his inventory. He paid it all for you. He, brought, he bought the pearl with his blood. Both of those, I believe, the divine interpretation, because the other ones both imply some great work on my part. And I know that if my salvation was based on some great work that I could ever muster, I'd be sunk this week. <laughs> Parables about the end of the age, number three, verse 47 says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet. Now, I don't want you to picture Joe Friday. Just a fact, ma'am. That will date you right there. Unless you watch the reruns on Nick at Night, then you could have been a young person. Then. Well, yeah, still Nick at Night. Yeah, right. Okay, okay. <laughs> Kingdom of Heaven's like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. See a theme? So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. A dragnet is typically a net. Um, it's like 700 foot, uh, a huge net, right? And it makes a wall. At the bottom of it has sinkers. At the top of it has floaters. And it just comes like a whole wall. And it's put out and they pull it towards shore. And it pulls every kind of fish, even the kind that violate Levitical customs, eels, all this other different stuff. It's all in there. It's all in the kingdom. And what happens, though, is eventually um, at the end, at the end of the age, then there's a sifting process. It's just a parable talking about the end of the age again, that there's a time coming where the genuine are going to be sifted from uh, the, the bogus, you know. And it's coming. It's kind of a warning to some, but it's encouraging to others. Verses 51 and 52, Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? And they said, yeah, Lord. I love that. We know that they don't understand all these things. We know it. But Jesus doesn't just chop them right there and say, you don't get it. I'll tell you what, you need to go to my website and download this PDF and go through these first sermons and you're going to come back next week and we're going to have a quiz. You know, he doesn't do that. He just, he lets them understand and 
He's, he's interested in growing you. He's interested in shaping you and, and molding you and teaching you and encouraging you. Yes, Lord. Then he said to them, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out his treasure things new and old. What he's getting at here is the true disciple, he's talking to his disciples, the true disciple understands how to connect the old things of the Old Testament to what Jesus is doing. That's what he's getting at. It's a good exhortation to us. Um, can you find Jesus in every book of the Old Testament? You know, the whole Bible is about Jesus. The whole thing is about Jesus Christ uh, and redemption and salvation. Last point, Jesus rejected in his hometown. Transition right here, verse 30, uh, 53 says, Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is, this not, is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not with us, all with us? Where then did this man get these things? So Capernaum's kind of his home base, but then he goes back to Nazareth, his hometown. And this is a change in the book of Matthew, a geographical change and so on. And he goes into the synagogue, which was typical. Traveling rabbis would teach in the synagogues. If you were going around, you know, it's a Saturday, it's a Sabbath, they may have a different traveling rabbi come in. Jesus comes in and teaches. And it says right there that they were astonished, verse 54. Just astonished. But then once familiarity started to kick back in, they said, no, nah, he can't. How could he have these great things? I mean, we know the dude. I mean, his brothers are here, his sisters are here, Right? You know, there's a danger of becoming too familiar, right? Isn't there a danger of becoming too familiar? Get to know your pastor too well. Oh, he's corny outside here, this guy. And then you hear the word of God, it steps on your feet, and you go, oh, I, don't, I, I saw Adam do this last week. He, I'm going to listen to that. Don't we know this guy? Aren't his brothers and sisters here? Here's an aside, and I just want to keep driving this point home, that Jesus, the perpetual virgin, virginity of Mary, it can't work with this verse because Jesus had brothers and sisters. The Catholics will say, no, the word brothers could be translated as cousins. Well, sisters can't. So uh, that kind of squashes that argument there. And I just say that because I want a clear confusion out of the body of Christ. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. That's a made-up doctrine. Uh, it's not legitimate. Okay, so something to think about, though, too familiar with him. Oh, this guy, because we know him, because we know his upbringing, he couldn't possibly say anything worthwhile. Some people look at their kids like that. You know, their kids will never do anything great in their eyes, right? You know, because, oh, that's just my kid. And the last thing I could ever have him do is intellectually surpass me, you know, so I got to put him down all the time, make him codependent on me. Just watched an episode of Restaurant Impossible last night, and that was what's going on in there. The guy wouldn't let his kid take over the restaurant, and he kept beating him down because he wanted to be needed by his kid. And, and so all that to be said with fam for familiarity. Familiarity, too much. They know Jesus too well, so they can't receive from him. And this is tragic. Look at this, verse 57. So they were offended at him, tragically. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. If you get saved and your family doesn't take it seriously who you are and they want to chop you down, 
just realize you're in good company with Jesus, you know, and it's okay. Don't let them defeat you. You just keep going. Keep loving them as a servant, right? And then just tragic, verse 58, and he did not do mighty works there because of their unbelief. I wonder if Jesus wants to do something in your life, but you, he won't because of unbelief. Because that's what happened there, right? You ever thought about that? There are some people that go around keep reinforcing all these things that are bad about them. And you say, no, God wants to deliver you from that. He wants to heal you from that. You wonder if maybe why he doesn't is because you don't believe that he can. I'm not proposing word of faith BS where, you know, or garbage or whatever, where you, um, you know, if I have enough faith, I can make anything happen. I'm not saying that. But there is something to be said here for Jesus not doing works in his hometown because they didn't believe. What's God trying to do in your life, but you don't believe? You know? I'll always be the same. I'll always be this person. You know, I've got this temper. I've always had a temper. Hey, God can heal you of that. I'm always critical of other people. I'm always judging them. God can heal you of that. I'm so fearful. I can't speak well in front of people. I can't, you know what I mean? Whatever it is. Whatever it is. Don't you believe that God can heal you of these things? Don't you believe that God can equip you? Don't you believe that all things can happen through Christ that fulfill his will? Amen, right? All things. God can do anything that God's called you to do, he will equip you to do, and you should start believing it, right? You should start believing it, even right now. As we go to the Lord's table today, that's something we'll reflect on is, do I have unbelief? Because when I come and I partake of these elements, I want to say, Lord, you know what? Help my unbelief. I want to believe all the things that you want to do in my life. I want to believe this deliverance in my life. I want to believe that you want to heal me, that you want to deliver me, that you want to build me up, that you want to, you know, do these great things through my life. And I want to be encouraged, Lord, because I know that as I go out and I sow the seed, I know that not everybody's going to respond. In fact, a small amount are. But I want the strength, Lord, to keep going, you know, and not lose heart and to be joyful and to be happy and to hear no a thousand times just to hear the one time where it produces 30, 60, 100 fold. And I'm going to do this knowing that there's corruption in the kingdom of God, knowing that sin is being pervasive in the body of Christ. Look, the last thing we want to do is start getting bitter because we see sin taking over the body of Christ, and it's happening, guys. But the last thing we want to do is become bitter, right? How are we going to do that? I'm going to go home, and I'm going to get a name tag that says, hello, my name is Pearl of Great Price. I'm going to put that on myself, and I'm going to be motivated by the love of God. I'm going to be motivated by the fact that Jesus paid it all. (sighs) He left his father's throne above. The song says he was free. He was infinite. His infinite grace. He emptied himself of all but love. And he bled for Adam's helpless race. I'm going to remember that's what he did for me. I think that's how, how we're going to keep going is we're going to be motivated by the love of God. Have you ever come to him? If you have not, it's very simple. First of all, start out by acknowledging your sin to him. Admit, confess. You believe in his provision that he sent his only son to die and pay an eternal sacrifice to pay for your eternal debt. 
and that his blood on the cross was sufficient for you to be forgiven of your sin. And by faith in him, God declares you righteous and God declares you forgiven. And it's by your trust and your belief in Jesus Christ. And that trust and that belief is evident in the fact that you confess with your mouth, you confess with your life that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's how you become saved. That's how you come into this kingdom. You leave behind the kingdom of darkness and you let him bring you into the kingdom of light. And if you haven't done that, I invite you to do that today. If you don't want to do that, if you haven't done that, then I invite you to pass on communion. But if you're going to partake of the elements here today, maybe this is a time to give your life to Christ. It's a great way to do so. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And uh, God, I pray that you would bless it to our hearts in the ways that you've spoken, Lord Jesus. Please produce fruit in our lives, Lord, and help us to remain unstained to the corruption of the world, but yet to be loving, to be joyful. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.